Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 20 of Party in China. The working title is Party Back in Bloody Sichuan After a Four-Day Drunken Binge in Hong Kong. But that needs work. I awoke in Sam's guesthouse Chengdu with no real memory of how I got there. I recalled Shenzhen Airport and my delayed flight. I remembered the Air China flight attendant apologising because they didn't have any Guinness, just tepid, weak Tsingdao beer. And uh, I remember her slipping me several tiny bottles of Chivas Regal as a consolation prize. I could see several empty tiny bottles of Chivas Regal on the bedside table as supporting evidence. I scanned the room and found my new larger backpack purchased in Hong Kong to fit all my new clothes in, as well as my wallet, passport and spectacles. That last was a relief, as sometimes when I'm very drunk, I think it's funny to torture my sober self by hiding my glasses somewhere sneaky. I also found my phone, which told me it was 10 o'clock, so I was already missing classes in the Yang Foreign Languages School. But I wouldn't have woken up at all if not plagued by mosquitoes. Of all the unfair aspects of China, extreme wealth and sickening poverty existing side by side, for instance, the one that really twisted my tit was mosquitoes in cold weather. I am no stranger to the buzzing buggers and don't begrudge them a drop or two of blood. Mosquitoes need to feed their babies too. At home, I view the lost blood as the price you have to pay, the blood money, if you like, for living somewhere warm and beautiful. I'd arrived in midsummer when Diang was very warm, if not particularly beautiful, and the locals most pleased to meet me were the mozzies. It was hot, mid-30s and higher every day, let's say around 90 for US listeners. So I wasn't surprised when the second most common noise at night after people spitting in the streets outside my bedroom window was the high-pitched whine of a famished mummy mozzie. Sichuanese mosquitoes are bigger but slower than Aussie ones. They leave a larger splatter of stolen blood on the wall. Yet because of the hot, humid weather, I accepted their existence as part of the package. But it was nearly December now and cold. Bloody freezing, actually. The Chinese were walking around dressed in bulky parkas with yak fur hoodies. So why was I awakened at night by large mosquitoes attacking me slowly? Hot, beautiful place equals mosquitoes. Cold, boring place equals no mosquitoes. Didn't these buzzing bastard bugs know the rules? Anyway, I scratched at my new bites while getting myself and my stuff together, then reported to Sunny so they could photocopy my hard-earned Z-Visa and to let them know that almost all of their information and instructions about Hong Kong had been wrong-wrong. I then headed back to Diang, arriving at school in time to miss lunch, which was good, and attend my afternoon classes, but I was still too hungover to make much of an effort. So I just handed out the various newspapers, pamphlets, postcards and maps collected on my long weekend, and let the students share and discuss these exotic treats, occasionally answering a question or two. It worked so well, it became my lesson plan for the rest of the week. I further exploited my Hong Kong trip over the next few weeks by showing my classes selections from a DVD compilation of James Bond movies I'd bought in Mong Kok markets. 
I chose the Roger Moore era as there are no actual sex scenes, plus there's lots of idiom and expressions to teach, as well as daft gadgets and bad jokes to explain. It was important not to have any sex, as even a screen kiss resulted in catcalls from the boys and embarrassment for the girls in the senior classes. The juniors would go into a panic, covering their eyes, lifting the lids of their desks and putting their heads inside, calling, Teacher! Teacher! Please stop it! Stop, teacher! Stop! Until I fast-forwarded past the offensive incident. Embarrassingly, a much more offensive incident took place inside a pair of my brand new trousers as some of my seniors were gleaning whatever English education they could from live and let die, I suddenly and unexpectedly prepped myself. As a lifelong frequent farter, it was a real surprise when the anticipated dry breeze transformed into a nasty squall. Luckily, I was standing at the back of the class. Even more luckily, Bond and Solitaire were at that moment being strafed by a helicopter, so the machine gun fire covered up any bottom blurts that may otherwise have been audible to the class. I instantly clamped down and my hatch remained battened for the rest of the lesson, which was thankfully only several minutes. If any of the senior students wondered why I left the room sideways via the back door and then called from the corridor for someone to bring me out the DVD, they didn't mention it. And if anyone witnessed my Yosemite Sam-like bow-legged gait as I rushed back to the apartment, it again went blessedly unremarked. Once in the safety of my bathroom, I ascertained that the disaster was infinitely worse in my imagination than reality. The washing machine quickly cancelled my temporary and involuntary membership of the Brown Gusset Club, but it was the start of three days of gurgly cramps and squirts as some evil intruder turned my insides into its own personal amusement park. Unless it was the Mexican food, my last meal in Hong Kong. But I'm sure it couldn't have been the 12% alcohol Danish beer that I'd been quaffing at the airport. No. That had nothing to do with it. If you recall the opening of Live and Let Die, a New Orleans funeral parade is underway. The mainly, if not completely, Afro-American congregation walks slowly, sadly, the widow weeping. A CIA agent asks another man whose funeral it is, and he says, yours, as he stabs him in the back. The agent collapses in the street, the pallbearers lower the coffin, which has a false bottom, to pick up the body. The band starts playing a lively jazz tune and the congregation all dance happily away. I thought the students might enjoy the line, yours, and the trick coffin, sure, but the big laugh was always the weeping widow. Every class broke up in screaming laughter at her grief. I really don't know why. Because she was fat? Because she was black? Both? Neither? I don't know. I'm a fan of Roger Moore. I grew up on Ivanhoe, The Saint and The Persuaders. But I thought too highly of my senior internationals to subject them to his almost parody version of Bond. So had also bought the first season of Glee. Thinking that the high school setting plus singing and dancing would be relevant to high school kids who like to sing and dance. Unfortunately, I didn't preview the first episode. Rachel talks about her two gay dads, who had mixed their sperm together in a turkey baster, 
for the surrogate mum so that they couldn't know who her real father was. Apart from me laughing my head off, it passed completely without comment. So either they didn't understand it, or the censor left it out of the Chinese subtitles, or probably both. One very pleasant aspect of early winter in Diang is the plethora of puppies. You couldn't walk more than a block without coming across a friendly furball on a leash, panting for a pet. Their always female owners were more than happy to let you bend down and make a fuss of their new mutts, while I was more than happy to get a better look at their legs. Cleavage is considered vulgar, but they wear skirts that barely cover the yoni. One afternoon, after a beer trip to Walmart, I was waiting for the bus home when a beautiful woman with fantastic gams and a cute puppy came along. I happily patted and played with the dog while she stood by smiling at us both and was so busy trying not to get caught checking out her shapely thighs, it took me a while to realise that there was a horn loudly honking behind me. It was my bus with the driver waiting for me to get on. That's a kindness not usually offered on the 433 to Balmain. I didn't ask how he recognised me. Even better than meeting lots of puppies that month was meeting John and Perry, a Turkish couple in their 30s, well-travelled and well-connected, with excellent English and confident, but what they assured me was eccentric Mandarin. I couldn't tell. And I imagine they speak Turkish pretty well too. They taught in the primary school next door. They'd been in Diang for four or five years, which I had trouble believing, and they seemed to really like working for Sunnies, which I had much more trouble believing. But they insisted that other agencies which they'd worked with were worse. When I arrived, Sunnies had given me their phone number and told me to contact them for assistance. But at first I forgot, then lost the piece of paper, then forgot I lost it. Stupid of me, really, as they'd have been of immeasurable help. John, in particular, seemed to know everybody who was anybody, as well as every eatery and drinkery in Diang, Chengdu, and all the surrounding cities. Any time I greeted the dawn eating spicy street barbecue with my two dozenth drink in my hand, John was on the other side of the tiny table. Perry was much more sensible, although you wouldn't know it from her dyed hair so bright it showed up on Google Earth. She'd join us for dinner, maybe a couple of drinks afterwards, and then gracefully take her leave before things became messy. Because things always became messy. At the time of recording this, John and Perry had a son a couple of months ago. He's named Kaya, and they're all still in Diang, so I've only met him on Facebook. But he's a beautiful boy, and I'd like to congratulate them and welcome them to the podcasts. I know they listen and must have been wondering why I'd left them out. John is a realist and suffered none of my delusions of teaching grandeur. In fact, he displayed a marvellous cynicism about teaching in China, sometimes describing himself as a professional time waster. He taught Trevor and I to always write on the blackboard, even if it's something useless or irrelevant, and to never erase it after the class, because the Chinese teacher would think that you'd actually be doing some work. He also revealed that the students were asked to rate their foreign teachers and a bad review could mean a sacking. That would have been fine with me. His advice, therefore, was to let the kids do more or less what they wanted while remaining aware that they might report to you anyway for not teaching them anything. It was good advice, which I couldn't follow. My view was that if I wasn't teaching them something, what the hell was I doing in the southwest of China? 
I didn't try to maintain my original naive enthusiasm. I, I no longer fantasized about a two Mr. Party with Love movie, for instance. I just scaled back my expectations and was satisfied if I felt like I taught at least one student in each class one thing in each week. I must have been doing something right. The route home from the school passed alongside the students' dormitories and it was a rare day when I didn't hear Hello, Mr. Party! yelled from the windows. I'd wave in the general direction of the hail, feeling like a red carpet celebrity and often eliciting further delighted squeals. But John and Perry were much more popular. Their students mobbed them like demented One Direction fans. There's a real double standard about dogs in China. On the same street where pampered pooches parade on leashes, equally cute puppies are cooped up in cages on doorsteps, window ledges or outside shops, and they're being grown for food. Often Chinese friends would try and get me to taste dog meat, but I refused, explaining that I loved dogs. They maintained that you can love dogs and eat dogs, but I don't want to eat anything with a name. On the other hand, I often consumed unidentifiable meats in restaurants and at the school cafeteria, so who knows? I probably chomped on a chewy chow or tasted a toasted terrier, but at least we hadn't been introduced. The lovely German, Jean, showed up at my apartment one day with a beautiful ball of white fluff. She'd seen him in a cage at a local convenience store and had the teacher she was with ask the shopkeeper if she could take him for a walk. The family there were surprised, but said okay. For a couple of weeks, she'd picked Dexter up from the shop. We called him Dexter as I'd introduced her to the excellent TV series. And I thought if the puppy had half of Dexter's resourcefulness, he might yet survive. Anyway, she'd pick Dexter up from the shop, bring him to my place where he'd pee on the floor, and then we'd take him out for a walk and games. I never had the heart to tell her they were going to eat Dexter. In our next episode, my Christmas in Sichuan. Well, actually, so much Christmas stuff went so horribly, hideously, hilariously wrong. It'll take more than one episode to tell it all. But let's just say all of my hysterical holiday mishaps will be coming up soon on Party in China. I'm Party Parslow. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.